Welcome to the Podium Podcast, where we bring together leaders from the worlds of sports, media and philanthropy to discuss the people and stories that change the world. At Podium Pictures, we make impact. We encourage you to visit PodiumPictures.com to learn more about our mission. Now, here's your host, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Brett Rapkin. Welcome to the Podium Podcast. Today we have another very special guest. Andy Bernstein is one of the biggest sports photographers there is. His first NBA job was shooting the 1983 All-Star Game at the Forum, which of course was remembered for Marvin Gaye's legendary rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. He has served as team photographer for the Lakers, Clippers, Kings, and Dodgers. He's also the director of photography for Staples Center and LA Live, and he was the senior director of NBA photos from 1986 to 2011. He is now the founding partner in Legends of Sport and host of the Legends of Sport podcast. Andy is a 2018 recipient of the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, which is presented to members of electronic and print media. Andy reached out to me when The Weight of Gold came out to congratulate me for the work and Obviously, mental health is a subject that's important to him, so I'm thrilled to call him a friend and to give you a chance to listen to some of his story here on the Podium Podcast. If you're a Kobe Bryant fan or a sports fan in general, this is one you won't want to miss. Andy Bernstein, welcome to the Podium Podcast. How are you today? I am good, my friend Brett. How are you doing? I'm going to congratulate you, and I don't not jinxing it, but you know the fact that you're nominated for the weight of gold for an for a uh, Emmy is just fantastic. So I know this is going to come out after the the dust settles, but it's very thrilling to know that you were you were nominated. So Mazel Tov on that, my friend. Well, thank you. I mean, they, the cliche is it's an honor just to be nominated, and I, I really do feel I was texting with Jeremy Bloom the. Big skier slash NFL player slash entrepreneur slash right. male model whose sister was the movie Molly's Game was about her <laughs> last night. And, uh-huh. you know, I said, it's just, it's amazing. We got the movie done and we got it out there, you know, on HBO. It's it's a miracle in itself. Yeah. It's been quite a process. And thank you for your support along of the course. way with when it came out. Yeah. I mean, what, I'll just start there. Like what, what inspired you to reach out to me when you saw The Weight of Gold? Well, it, it uh, was so powerful, my friend. First of all, artistically and creatively, the way you were able to present this very sensitive topic of mental health, especially with athletes and high-profile athletes, I thought that was amazing. But I also, I was just very moved because Legends of Sport, you know, my the platform that I've been actively launching and, and pushing forward for the last four or five years you know, we are very much, our mission is about helping athletes um, off, you know, off the playing field, off the surface to, you know, be better human beings and to reach out for help and, you know, retired athletes, but also, you know, current athletes. So I don't know, I just was very moved by it. And I saw it, I believe I was in the bubble when I saw it, right? The NBA bubble. Right. It was in August, right? When it came out. July 29th. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just about to go, fearing for my own mental health <laughs> in, that, in that situation. But anyway, I I learned from Kobe that 
you know, if somebody inspires you or has a story or something about them is is just something you want to learn about and you don't know them, reach out and ask and, you know, ask to meet them. He did that with so many people, you know, John Williams. I mean, he wouldn't have won an, uh, an Oscar if he didn't reach out to John Williams and pick his brain. And, you know, I decided to do that with you. I, I think I looked you up on whatever, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever it was, and uh, that's how we connected. What is it that you think allows somebody to have, the, is it confidence to reach out to people? I know it's something I do too. And, you know, so many of the things that I've been able to uh, accomplish are, are because of that, I don't know, mm -hmm. willingness to reach out. Do you think that, but I know a lot of people who aren't comfortable doing that. Is that a confidence thing? I think it, uh, you have to have confidence. Yes, you have to. First of all, the person could not respond or should slam the door in your face or tell you to go, you know, you what, or, or they could respond. And my experience has been that people usually respond. People are appreciative. I know I am. People reach out to me all the time, you know, students or fledgling photographers or what have you. So confidence is part of it. You know, I'm going to take from Kobe again, you know, one of the tenants, the pillars of the mom mentality is curiosity. And it was real curiosity on my part. Like, how did you get Michael Phelps or Apollo Ono or Lolo Jones or all the rest of them to feel to feel comfortable opening up uh, to you. And I thought that was that was inspiring to me and it, I wanted to know how you did it. And I also wanted, as another creative person, quite honestly, I wanted to let you know how it moved me and how I was appreciative of you bringing this difficult subject to the forefront. I appreciate that. And, and just, I'd be remiss if I didn't do a little bit of background on on your incredible career. You're from Brooklyn? That's correct, sir. Yes. So how'd you Brooklyn get from boy from Brooklyn to up close <laughs> and personal with the NBA and beyond? Well, yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, raised uh, in a very sports conscious family, and I took up photography when I was fourteen. My dad bought me a camera, and we made a trip out to the Western National Parks, and it was it was super enlightening for me. That was kind of my epiphany in terms of create creatively what I wanted to do with my life. And came back and went, you know, finished up high school, went to the University of Massachusetts. And I was working for our daily newspaper there and was not, I was learning a lot by working for the daily newspaper, but not enough of the science of photography, of the history about business, how to make a career out of photography. I mean, it was a fun thing to do and I loved being there. Um, but I needed to make a hard decision if I was going to move forward with photography as a career. And that decision was to, to take the show on the road, you know, to uh, transfer to Art Center, College of Design in Pasadena, a very well-known and prestigious art and design school, which I did in my junior year. I was 19 years old. And uh, it was a, you know, it was, it was a risky move. It was risky also because Art Center did not embrace photojournalism or especially sports photography, which was the poor stepchild of photojournalism. And I was encouraged by a couple of teachers who knew that I was getting very distressed <laughs> and discouraged to just stay with it. Like they, they could tell that I, you know, had some talent and, and regardless of what the school had to say, you know, the, you know, talent usually wins out in the end. So I kept doing that. And one of these teachers who's still a mentor of mine, 40 plus years later, he, at the time, introduced me to some Sports Illustrated photographers who took me under their wing, and I became an assistant for them here in L.A. 
in the Southern California area and learned a very specialized technique of lighting indoor arenas with big strobe units, big flash units. And that was a very, it was specialized, but it was, SI was the only entity that was doing it. But it showed me how I could really up the game in, in indoor sports photography, especially for basketball and hockey. And doors were opening for me through my assistant work at the forum, especially with the Lakers and Kings and who played there. And then the Clippers, you know, moved in 84. And, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. Showtime was, you know, taking off. I started to work for the NBA. The 83 All-Star Game at the Forum was my first gig with them. Got the Dodgers team photography job in 84 shortly after that. And things really started to happen. Uh, I was running a small, very small mom-and-pop type of picture agency out of my garage. And then we moved to an, an office situation. And helped to create NBA photos in 86 and became the league's first official photographer at that point. And that's kind of how things happen, my friend. It is the case of being in the right place at the right time, but also making opportunities that are available, you know, taking advantage of those opportunities. There's a crack in the door, you know, stick your foot in it a little further and see where it'll lead you. And also using the wisdom and help of mentors because even to this day, it's still important to me. Who is there one mentor that stands out above the rest or? There, there's a few, there's three in particular. First one I I have to mention is Neil Leifer. I I was a young sports photographer. I think I was, I think I was still in school and I reached out to him, you know, back in the day, we didn't have email, we didn't have texting, we didn't have social media, actually wrote Mr. Neil Leifer a letter put it in the mail, asked him if I could meet with him. I was coming home to visit my family during the holiday. He wrote me back. He gave me his phone number. He said, sure, kid, you know, I'll make time for you. He didn't know me from anybody. There was no connection there. Nobody introduced me to him. I just, you know, it's one of the godfathers of sports photography. So I, you know, I rolled the dice and took a risk that he would respond. I mean, it's a crazy, epic story, but, you know, he invited me to his apartment, which I thought it would be like a 20-minute meeting. I'd show him my little meager portfolio, you know, get, get a couple of words of wisdom from the great Neil Lifer. I ended up staying there two and a half hours. His apartment was like a shrine, a museum to, to his epic work. You know, there's on the wall a giant print of Ollie over Liston, you know, or Y.A. Tittle or Joe Namath or whatever it was, you know. And anyway, he, he encouraged me and it was, it was really pivotal in my development and my competence. And I had two teachers in, at Art Center, Jim Cacabo taught the only editorial, like sort of photojournalism type documentary class at Art Center. Jim was a Red Cross photographer during the Vietnam War, obviously very passionate, very opinionated, very driven. He and I had a similar sort of, I don't know, psyche. And then my other teacher who had actually introduced me to the SI photographers, Bill Robbins, I ended up working for him in his studio, doing everything from cleaning the bathroom to taking film to the lab, to picking him up at the airport, to traveling with him, to planning and, and executing, you know, major photo shoots with celebrities in the studio on location. So I learned so much from Bill and I'm still, I'm still in debt to Bill. I'm still attached to him. He is the the chair of the photo department at Mount St. Mary's University, uh, where he moved the Brooks program to when Brooks shut down. And I teach there once a year. I do a, a co-teach a sports photography class. 
only because really, I mean, I love doing it, but also because of Bill, because I want to give back. Excellent. You know, I went to a, a dinner one year for the ACLU and Muhammad Ali was one of the honorees and he came over by our table and I gave, it was actually a camera back when people had cameras uh, right. that weren't their phone. And we gave the camera to a friend of his who took a picture of myself, my dad, my brother and Ali. And I only figured out years later that it was Howard Bingham who actually no. took the picture yeah. and I got to know Howard, you know, yeah. spent a fair amount of time with him through a mutual friend and mm. um, somebody I'd love to do a documentary about at some point. Yeah, he deserves a documentary. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Howard isn't with us anymore, but his story of being Ali's best friend and also, by the way, his documentarian, his, his personal photographer, is a story I think needs to be told. I mean, everything they went through together from civil rights to, you know, all the crazy fights and the experiences. And uh, he was right there at Ali's side. And I met him various times and he was couldn't have been a nicer guy. <laughs> you know, he uh, the first time man. I met him, I got to tell you, the first time I met him was back. I believe it was Kobe's rookie year, around 96 or maybe 97. And he and Ali were at the game. And Howard, uh, they were sitting courtside, and Howard made a point to come over and and say hi to me. I guess somebody told him I was a Lakers photographer. And he said, well, you know, I want to take the champ into the locker room after the game. Do you think the guys would want pictures with him? (laughs) I said, yeah, I think so, Howard. I think they would like it. He said, well, can you help me with that? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, so I told the PR person, of course, Ali came in and it was, it was like the Red Sea parted, you know, the locker room, busy locker room. All of a sudden the champ comes in and Howard directed the photos. And I, and then when we finished with all the players, the staff, Howard said to me, okay, now you have to get one. And he, and he made me give him my camera <laughs> and took a picture of me with the champ with my camera. <laughs> What what Laker era was that? It was it was Kobe's first or second year. It was you know Shaq Kobe beginning of the Shaq Kobe era. Yeah, I'd love to see that one. Yeah, I got to dig that picture up somewhere, but I have it somewhere. It kind of reminds me of different, but the same of the story. And I don't know if it's true where there's the famous picture of Ali and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was like early in the Beatles. I think they were still kind of yeah. coming onto the scene, at least in America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ali takes all these pictures with the Beatles and supposedly they left the room and he said, who the fuck are those guys? <laughs> That's true. But that picture, and I, I'm sorry if I, I don't know the name of the photographer, I just saw that picture recently where he's punching the four Beatles or like going off, going over in like dominoes. I believe that was in Miami. The Beatles were playing in Miami. I think the champ was training there somehow or other you know, the publicity people got them together. But yeah, I did hear that story. I had no idea who these like four white guys with the weird haircuts were. Access, you know, I saw a picture that was on your your platform today, Legends of Sport, which we're going to talk about. And it was a picture of Magic Johnson on a boat uh, mm. in, in the Bahamas or somewhere beautiful. Really? Magic on a boat? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now I, I didn't see this is the Instagram today. Yes. That was during the Dream Team experience, which by the way, was like the best assignment of all time. I wish I could have retired after that one, but we had some downtime. The team was training in Monaco and Magic's family, they had either been there and left and then we're going to come back, but he was kind of there by himself for a little while. 
and all the guys had family, but he was, you know, for this little period of time, he was by himself. And I had made friends with um, a fantastic journalist named Christophe de Relais. He was kind of the authority on basketball, NBA basketball, European basketball. He was sort of the conduit between the dream team and the local media. And somehow the mayor got involved. The mayor of Nice was there. And all of a sudden, Christoph invites Magic, me, I think it was the mayor's boat, and my dad was there, right? And he invites us on this private yacht to have basically, you know, a cruise around the Mediterranean, you know, the Riviera, from Monaco to Nice and stop at a restaurant that was owned by this fantastic guy named Mamo, which Magic and his wife still go to the guy's restaurant when they're in, in Nice. And anyway, it was just maybe the five of us touring around. And that was that photo was from that. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. Incredible. I mean, I'm looking at that photo. I'm like, you know, Andy's obviously standing there with a camera. And I know like in my experience, not so much with photography, but in video work, especially when I used to shoot, you know, some of my own stuff, there's been times where like sometimes I feel really comfortable and I feel like the talent we're working together. And other times I feel almost like paparazzi and it makes me feel uncomfortable. Is that mm -hmm. something that you've experienced and how do you sort of work through that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Brett. It goes back to the beginning of our conversation today about confidence. As a young photographer, I mean, I had some Brooklyn moxie in me and I knew, you know, how to kind of maneuver my way around. But one of the most difficult things was getting in, you know, into the inner sanctum, so to speak. And that primarily was with the Lakers. And I remember very early in my career, maybe, you know, two, three years into it, Pat Riley became coach. And I, I kept trying to get into his huddle. I don't know if you heard this story, if I, you and I have shared this, but this, this is really what kind of set everything in motion. And I kept trying to get into his huddle during timeouts or, you know, pregame or when the team came back after, you know, halftime or whatever. And he'd like shoo me out. Like he'd see me, you know, he'd be crouched down or he'd be talking to the guys and he'd see me out of the corner of his eye and he'd like do one of these. And, uh, you know, Pat being from Schenectady used very colorful language at the time and was trying to just get me the hell out of his, out of his, Huddle. It's kind of discouraged, but it wasn't given up. But at one point, I just stopped doing it. And after a few games, he saw me pregame on the baseline, sort of setting up my stuff. And the guys are out there warming up. And he points at me. And when Pat Riley points at you and then goes like this, like, okay, it's like you're going to the principal's office. And this like young sports career, sports photography career might come, be coming to a crashing halt <laughs> before it even got started. And he looks me in the eye, he goes, hey, kid, and I was a kid then. He says, uh, why, why the F are you trying to get in my huddle, man? Because I, I keep telling you to get out, and you keep coming back. <laughs> I said, well, coach, you know, <clears throat> I love the fact that you're in there with Kareem and Magic and Worthy and Bill Burtka and Gary Beatty. All the guys are in there. And, you know, in those days, TV wasn't even getting in the huddle. You know, they'd have to shoot from, you know, back out somewhere. I said, but, you know, as a fan, I want to see what you're, what you're diagramming, what you're saying. You know, I want to document that. I, I think the fan, all the other fans want to see that too. And he looked at me and he says, all right, man, I'll I tell you what, I'll let you do it one time tonight, once. 
And if you F it up, you're never coming back. <laughs> so I did it. Might have been third quarter, you know, timeout or something. And there was a game a couple of days later. I made a few prints for him. A couple eight, you know, I made three or four eight by tens and brought it to, into his coach's office before that game, the next game. And I gave him to him. <laughs> he looks up at me, he goes, you were in my fucking huddle? <laughs> I you made said, yourself yeah, invisible. Yeah. I said, yeah, coach, can I come back? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you passed the test. So that was the beginning of, of that, Brett. And that was, that built a lot of confidence. And, you know, one of the things with, with the NBA, the fact that I'm working for a team, you know, be it the Dodgers or Lakers, Clippers, you know, and the Kings, and I'm working for a team, I'm working for the league. So I'm not there to make these guys look bad, right? I'm not going to take a compromising picture. There's been a couple of times in my career where I could have taken compromising photos and I didn't because that's not what I'm getting paid for. So unlike paparazzi who are trying to get a gotcha picture so they can make a lot of money, that's not my gig, you know? So the guys respected that. I think they understood that I was there to help them look good. This is pre-social media. And all they had was, you know, in those days were trading cards and posters and magazines. So, you know, if I make them look good in those those kind of entities, then, you know, maybe they'll, they'll get an endorsement or they'll get a better contract or whatever it is. But I tried to endear myself with them. I was always giving out print. These days I do that now digitally. After every game, I'll send photos to courtside people or Steve Ballmer or, or people like that who I know appreciate it. And that's led to some great friendships. So it's just part of what I do. But, but that early experience like if that had gone the other way, I'm not sure I would. I think my confidence might have been broken at that point. Yeah. I and mean, there's definitely a feel to knowing when to fade into the background. And certainly, I mean, just being a familiar face, I feel like these guys, so many people come at them. I mean, yeah. both in, in public, you know, people are constantly coming up to them while they're trying to eat dinner or be with their family. But even mm -hmm. in terms of, of professional work, I remember I did a shoot with John Wall when he was young. I think he was in his first or second year with mm -hmm. the Wizards. And I went to, yeah. it was for Red Bull. And, and he just, you know, he, I remember talking to him and he had never been out of the country before at that point. Mm -hmm. you know, he had had mm -hmm. you know, just kind of a, a sheltered life. And it was a video shoot, not a, not a photography shoot. But, you know, the crew mm -hmm. was there and everybody was like, we, John's here, we got to start. And I said, give me five minutes with the guy. And we shot some free throws. He showed mm -hmm. me how they use the, the weighted ball to, to work on their free throws. And it was like just creating a little bit of rapport and then it was like okay mm -hmm. now we can get to work but so many people come right. in they're like hold this hold that look there look here and it you yeah. i think they get treated like they're not even a person you know i totally agree with you i mean i've been on many commercial shoots and i've seen you know directors or assistant directors who are they you know they just do they just they're used to dealing with celebrities in a certain way Athletes are a different kind of celebrity, as you know, and not as familiar or comfortable, most of them in front of the camera. So it takes some, you know, it takes some coddling. It takes some, you need to, you need to make them as comfortable as possible. And I think your story is great. I mean, we've had similar situations where, you know, the guys I've worked with, everyone from Magic and Shaq and Kobe have been great, but there's been other guys who... I remember my Dodger days, you know, those guys probably never did a photo shoot ever in their life, 
you know, a couple of guys from the Dominican. You know, I didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak English. I remember I did a shoot with Pedro Guerrero once. I was trying to communicate with him. Nicest guy ever, but it's like, <laughs> I practically draw a picture, like that's how I wanted him to be, you know. And it was, you know, the end result was great, but I totally hear where you're coming from. Well, you mentioned Kobe, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, I mean, you've worked with so many amazing athletes over the years, including you know, pretty much every Laker that we could name, but you know, out of respect for, for time, let's focus on Kobe for a few minutes. I know like, like you and so many people, I was so shocked when he passed and, you know, it seems like the world hasn't been quite, quite right since, but I'd love to hear about, uh, the process of collaborating with him on your book, Mamba Mentality specifically, you know, mm -hmm. Kobe's notoriously tough on his teammates tough on his collaborators. What was the, the creative process like with Kobe and how'd you make it out? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. Well, when he retired, he announced his retirement in November of that season, this 2015-16 season. And, you know, it was a little bit sad because, you know, I loved having him in front of my camera for 20 years. But then as I was thinking about his impending retirement, I was thinking about the gigantic archive of photos that had, had never really been seen before. You know, so much of my work has been published, yes, but there's a lot that wasn't published. There were, there were photos of mine that that I liked that I would, would want to get out there. So I made an appointment to to meet with him and his, his marketing team to pitch a Tashin-style sumo, one of those Jigundo huge books, right? That Tashin publishes. It's always been my dream to have a Tashin book. So I you, spent, went to, you went to Newport Beach? Went to Newport Beach. But before I did that, I made a prototype of the book. I made two copies and they're huge, you know, and they're, they're basically 24 inches when by 48 inches when you open them up, right? Gigantic. So I had a very good friend, Selena Duffy, who designed it with me and we did a we did you know a pretty hefty book. I mean, it was probably about uh, 30, 40 pages. Big double trucks, you know, huge photos. No copy whatsoever in the prototype, and uh, leather bound, hand stitched. You know, everything was you know custom made. And I put in a leather co cover, and I brought it. I put it <laughs> onto the conference table. He's he's Kobe sitting there and there's four other people sitting there. Put it on the conference table. Then I gave him these white cotton gloves and he looks up at me like, "Okay, I'm just I'm gonna let this guy just do it because you know we know each other. He, he knew this was important to me, so he puts on the cotton gloves. We take the book out of the cover, the you know the, the slip cover, and it is pretty impressive. You know, it's this leather bound book, and he starts going through it and through it and he's he's looking at it and he doesn't say a word he doesn't make a comment everybody's kind of looking at me like <laughs> um they don't know like what's going on with, in his mind and he he looks at it and he very respectfully like closes the book like this and i remember he tapped on it a couple of times and and he looked up at me brett he goes he looks at me he says andy i got some good news and i got some bad news <laughs> I said, okay, give me the good news first. Because the good news is we're going to do a book together. Bad news is not going to be this book. <laughs> he goes, I love it. He goes, but nobody wants to see beautiful pictures of me. And I couldn't really argue with him at, at the moment because I did feel that people wanted to see beautiful pictures of him. He says, no, the book I, 
And he had obviously given a lot of thought to this, knowing that I was going to come down and pitch a book idea. The book I want to do, he said, was a book that lets people in to what made me tick, you know, what made me the black mamba, what, you know, what the tenets of the mamba mentality are from my point of view. This isn't going to be a book that's as told to. This isn't going to be somebody writing a book about me. This is going to be me telling my story directly to fans, coaches, parents, young players, anybody who wants to understand, you know, what made me tick. You know, as you and I know, he was very private. He never really let anyone shoot except for me, his his incredible training regimen, his mental preparation, all that. I was privy to all of that throughout his career because I had, I had earned that trust with him. But none of that stuff had been published. So that was part of the book. Part of the book was discussing his process and craft, you know, process being how he prepared, how he recovered from injury, how he, you know, his mental preparation as well. And uh, the craft obviously was everything basketball related and how he, he improved as a young player to a veteran and what he learned from the greats, such as Jordan or whoever. So that was the process. And he was, he was incredibly giving as a collaborator. He was, he was demanding too. There was, there were photos that he knew. Well, there was subjects he wanted to talk about that he, he hoped and counted on me having pictures of. It was a, it was an arduous process because half of his career was shot during the film era. So it was pre-digital. So there really wasn't a cataloging way to, even though the NBA, NBA photos has a great archive system that, you know, it, it took a lot of took a lot of work, and I had a couple of good editors back at NBA Photos in New Jersey. There was a great editorial director who helped guide this book from you know from concept to fruition, and we were very happy with it. He you know all I cared about was that he was happy with this book at the end, and uh, he was, and he was happy that I was happy because you know it was originally my idea, and it was a fantastic experience, a once in a lifetime experience. How, how many versions of the book did he see? What was his kind of approval process? Did you make another prototype or how did you present it? Yeah, he was present and um, involved in every step of the way. The design of the book, the flow, the chapters, it was all guided by the subjects he wanted to discuss. The, the picture selection, every photo in that book was, was approved by him. I was able to sneak a couple of pictures in there that were important to me that really didn't speak to the concept of the Mamba mentality, but he knew that a couple of these photos had never really been published before or published enough. So he, he kind of gave me a, a wink and a nod on that. <clears throat> and the hardest part was really choosing the cover because obviously he had to be 100% happy with the cover and the designer kept bringing different cover ideas. And I was fine with anything, quite honestly, but- He just wanted to move it forward and get it done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but they came up. They found a photo buried somewhere in the film archive that he loved. And they turned it into black and white, and it and that became the cover. So the the book now, um, you know, since his passing, has just uh, eclipsed any expectation any any of us ever had. I think it's in twenty five or so countries, and just went over a million sold here in the U.S. And I know Vanessa looks at the book as as sort of the conduit of his legacy with the fans, which is very important to, to me as well. That's incredible. Congratulations on that. Is there a, do you have a favorite 
Kobe photo or is it too hard to choose? That's a tough one, Brad. You know, I got four kids, right? So you asked me that question. It's like asking to pick a favorite kid. But the one, the, the photo, and it's not an action photo. This is so, so crazy. Like two favorite photos that I ever took, probably one and one A, are not action photos. The Michael Jordan hugging the trophy after he won the, his first championship in 91. I'm sure you've seen that with his dad next to him. That and also Kobe sort of buried in, in an ice chest, black and white, sort of willing himself to play. It was a night in the depths of winter in, in New York in Madison Square Garden. He was really beat up. Both ankles were beat up. He had a busted finger. At that point, that was the 2009-10 season, and I was working on a book with Phil Jackson, which was all in black and white, documenting the Lakers' journey that season. So it happened to be in black and white, but also, you know, very, very clearly speaks to me of the Mamba mentality, like what what made this guy different than so many other guys. And that, those are the two photos of me, but the, of Kobe, that's probably my favorite. You know, I think so much of, of the reason we see athletes talking about mental health and dealing with mental health is that I, I think that some of the same things that make them incredible is also what can make life really hard for them. It couldn't have been easy for him to have the Mamba mentality all the time. You had mm -hmm. more access to him than almost anybody outside of his family. Mm -hmm. People don't talk a lot about Kobe and mental health. Do you think that the Mamba mentality was something that was tough for him at times? Well, I, I think um, looking at Kobe's career and life and maturation from, you know, basically he was drafted at 17 years old and was a rookie at 18, you know, that 18-year-old kid who lived and breathed basketball, completely obsessed with basketball 24 hours a day, I think until he became a husband and father, he wasn't really able to turn it off. And he talked about that. And But becoming a husband and father, I think, really clarified to him you know, really why he's playing basketball, you know, and that there's life outside of, of the 48 minutes that he's on the court and, and all the preparation and, and tape and everything that he watches. So, you know, I, I saw that happen. I also saw that when he adopted the Mamba persona, changed his number to 24, had overcome, you know, some difficulties in his life and, and he was able to kind of reinvent himself, you know, new number has this Mamba sort of persona, but I was, I did, I did physically see him um, turn it off. You know, once the game was over and he's in the locker room and he does his obligatory press stuff and, you know, Vanessa and Natalia and Gigi, they were very little. They'd be waiting very patient, patiently for him outside the locker room. And Kobe would come out, you know, always impeccably dressed. And as soon as he saw them, the Mamba cape went back in the closet. You know, it's kind of like when Superman had that secret closet, you know, Clark Kent in his apartment. It was kind of like that. And we all in the media respected that. We knew like at that instant, like right before he crossed, literally crossed the threshold from the locker room area to kind of the the exit out of the arena, that this was this was family time. This was Kobe, Kobe Bryant time. This is not the Mamba time. And we left him alone, and he, I think he respected that, that we did that. We all did that. But that's when I saw a physical, like, tangible change in him. Got it. I mean, access to athlete, athletes, I think, is going to continue to be 
something that's discussed. I mean, the Naomi Osaka uh, mm -hmm. story that's, you know, ongoing. It's yeah. a lot of it. They're talking about mental health and that's the term she used to discuss it. But I think mm -hmm. with these athletes having their own social media channels and their own production company, not necessarily in their minds needing the traditional media as much. Where do you see that going? Do you think that leagues like the NBA are still going to be requiring their athletes to do a certain amount of press? Or do you think that'll evolve? Well, I think we certainly have to listen to Naomi and the others who who have expressed difficulty, you know, dealing with the spotlight in that way. It's a very difficult subject because, you know, you can see it in, in different ways. I mean, just today I saw that a couple of well-known athletes came out sort of against what she did, you know, and, and that she should be doing media because she makes a lot of money off of what the media writes about her, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I think the human being has to come first. And I think that, that that needs to be respected. But then, you know, I can see how my friends, you know, on the team level and on the league level, they they have built so much trust with the media and with the, the players. And the media needs to hear from the players. They need to hear, you know, almost in the moment. They need to know, you know. When you know a team loses a set a game seven, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. So it's a tough one, man. I I don't know how it's going to go. I I can't imagine that. You know, tennis came down really hard on her at first, and they find her, and then they you know they were going to suspend her, I think, and blah blah blah. And I think they somebody woke them up to the fact that you know she's talking about her mental health as a person. You know, if you if 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 she's unable to compete because of, of mental health issues, you you know you're not going to have her out there competing in in the French Open or Wimbledon or whatever, and that's not what any of us want. So I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. It's it's an interesting subject. It really is. I don't know if there's like a happy medium in there somewhere, Brett. Curious to know your view on that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the athlete and their their channels right? The social media, but also I think things are going to evolve where you're going to turn on your TV and Naomi Osaka is going to have her own channel, her own yeah. app that's going to compete with, you know, Peacock and HBO. And that's just the way things mm. are going. I think mm. our TV screens are going to look like our computer screens where I yeah. mean, it's already happening now. Like you have the channels that you want, you have the apps that you want, whether it's yeah. a billion dollar corporation or it's something smaller. And so mm. I think there's uh, and I think it's happening. And uh, I mean, you probably have firsthand experience with some of your photos, but collab being collaborative where an athlete is able to utilize some of the content that mm -hmm. is generated by the league on their own channels. There still seems to be a divide between the athletes and the league in terms of yeah. this is ours, this is yours. And I think everybody wins if they can find ways to collaborate. Right. But the problem we're going to get into then is if the athlete is controlling their own media, so to speak, it, it's a, it's incredibly self-serving, but B, you're not getting the other side of it. You know, we have some great journalists out there who are able to be fair, are able to tell the story and not, you know, in a respectful way, of course, some not, but, but I think we need to have the, the access and the free press, you know, available to tell the story instead of the athlete just putting out what makes them look good, quite honestly, or whatever serves their interest. 
And we're seeing that on social media a lot. You know, the, the athletes with the bigger platforms are getting their narratives out there and they sort of short shrift their media responsibilities. They do it, but they don't give much out. And, you know, you see that in almost every sport now. It'll be definitely interesting to see how it evolves. I mean, at the end of the day, the eyeballs are more and more on social media, frankly, I think that yeah, that's where yeah. so many people are getting their news and their advertising and mm-hmm. learning about products and events and the athletes have the followers and they have the engagement. So it'll right. be fascinating to see how that evolves. Want to mm-hmm. just wrap up by giving you a chance to talk about Legends of Sport, the podcast and the platform. What, what's the vision there and, and uh, where do you see it going? Well, thanks, Brad. Yeah, Legends of Sport kind of started uh, between myself and a couple other partners, very, very close friends, also in the sports business. One's a lawyer, one's a sports licensing person, truly my best friends. And uh, we had decided about seven or eight years ago, we were sitting around during the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, All-Star Weekend. It was a cocktail party, and we just started talking about where we wanted to see our careers going and you know, guys don't really talk about that stuff, by the way. I don't know if you do with your friends. I don't really talk about those kind of big sort of issues. I it's do, but no, nobody listens. So. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> right. but you know, you're around guys, even if they're really close friends. You're talking sports. You're talking about your family. You're talking about whatever. So we got pretty deep, and we decided that we wanted to work together. We wanted to do something in sports. We didn't want to work for anybody anymore. And we wanted to give back in some way. And, you know, I was I was very privy to seeing how a lot of the legendary NBA players particularly are sort of just, just you know, out of sight, out of mind. And they get um, paraded out during, you know, a timeout at the finals or in, at chi- in the China games or, or in Europe or whatever. Nobody really knows who these guys are outside the United States. And some in the United States don't really know who they are. Like somebody literally once asked me, I think we were in, I was in Spain, if doc, what kind of doctor Dr. J was, you know, I mean, seriously. Doctor, so, doctor of dunks. Yeah. <laughs> and we all know they missed out on the big money. And we all know that these guys are doing this usually for the money, you know, to pay the rent or pay the alimony or pay whatever. And it's painful. I mean, for me to see that. And uh, my friends agreed. So we started Legends of Sport to sort of help those athletes get get sort of whole as human beings, you know, whether they needed recovery help or financial help, assistance or whatever, you know, custody issues, whatever it could be. And then they they would become marketable again and we could sort of shine the spotlight back on them. So Legends of Sport is a content sports content platform that sort of has that mission of documenting, perpetuating and also promoting uh, legendary athletes, moments, teams, personalities in sports. And there isn't really like a one-stop shopping sports platform where, you know, like I grew up hearing all about Ebbets Field, you know, as a Brooklyn Dodger fan, I never went to Ebbets Field, but I would love to have had a place to have learned about it, you know, or I would love to have learned about the 27 Yankees or, you know, the great Celtics dynasty or whatever. And, you know, yes, we have Google and we have Wikipedia and all that, but we want to be one-stop shopping for everything legendary in sports. We don't care about last night's score. 
I don't really care about, you know, how many three-pointers somebody might have had. Like if Steph Curry has, you know, eight three-pointers or breaks a record, how does that compare, you know, to when Reggie Miller did it or when Ray Allen did it, you know? So that's what we're about. And the podcast has been great. We're in the end of our third season. I've done 130 episodes, all A-list guests, I must say, from everyone from Magic and Kobe to Peter Goober to incredible women such as Sue Bird. This week we have Leonard Armato on, who's a great friend, but one of the great innovators and entrepreneurs in sports. You know, we have some really interesting people on the docket and we're partnered right now with the LA Times. So we're, we're distributed through them. And we also in this third season release a video version on our YouTube channel. So across the board, we're at Legends Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you know, all that stuff. And it's been a blast. It's been a juggling act, I got to say, because my regular job is very demanding. But the pandemic sort of helped with that, quite frankly, with giving me a little bit more time and opportunity to build Legends of Sport to where we wanted to get to. And we're, we're getting there. We're getting, we, we're about to get to the next level and the next level after that. We've been happy with the progress so far. Excellent. Well, Legend of Sport, check it out on the LA Times website. Check it out on YouTube, check it out on Instagram and all your favorite social media channels. Definitely a company to watch. Andy, thank you for your time. Thanks for being a friend. Thanks for reaching out about the weight of gold. And hopefully I can come visit you at your, your photography studio one of these days like we've been talking about. Oh, dude, I would love to have you out there. Great restaurant next door. And whenever you want, just get on the freeway, go east, you know. I'll be there waiting for you. And congrats again to you and the way to gold because it really was a watershed film. Um, if nobody, and I'm going to toot your horn right now, but if people haven't seen it, and I hope if they're listening and watching this that they have seen it, but they haven't, it's something that really should be um, like sort of required viewing <laughs> for anyone in the sports field or mental health or anybody who cares about people who have achieved greatness, but the weight literally the weight that comes with that and i applaud you for that brett thanks andy look forward to seeing you soon okay bud take care <laughs>